Hi, everyone. Back at you with another episode of ESEC Lending Insights, where we keep it unscripted, real, and interesting. Unscripted, Peter? I would say that's definitely true, but interesting. Why don't we let our listeners decide on that one? What we are here to do, folks, is share with you our thoughts and perspectives on the securities lending industry, whether that be about demand trends or just what's going on in the industry. And now over to our episode. Let's go. I know, Zeke, you like to prepare. You are an outline man. You have lots of words and you like to get us all organized. So I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but we've done zero prep for this. This is off the cuff, as you say. So we're okay with this audience, friends and family. We're good. All right, good. So welcome listeners back to another episode of ESEC Lending Insights. We have with us today returning guests, returning favorites to the ESEC Lending Insights podcast. It's also because our list of external guests, I think I could count on one hand. So it's easy to be in the top five when that's the case for this. But we have Mr. Bob Z. Krause and Mr. Tommy Benziano. Tommy V. Tommy V. Is easier for all included from PRM. And we also have Jim Maroney. Are you my co-host today, Jim? I guess I am. What, and what I go chair by, are you in? I go by Jimmy M in the <laughs> stock loan world. Tommy <laughs> G, Jimmy M, and Bobby D. Why does Zeke call you JJ? My middle is that name like is Jim Joseph. Jr.? My middle name is Joseph. Well, you can answer it, Zeke, but I think it's because of my email at my prior shop. Correct. So JJ Maroney at aforementionedfirm.com. So yeah, JJ became my calling card for Jim. So I've referred to him in the stock loan industry as JJ. Tommy V is well known. And most people would just refer to me as Zeke. Well, Brooke, we need a name for you. So, I, And I appreciate yeah. you saying we made your top five of a limited group. So it makes me feel really yeah. more special well, at this you point. Know, I always like to make our guests feel welcome. Guests and listeners, because there's also five listeners and they're all Jim's friends, which might be <laughs> your friends as well, just to be clear. So good stuff. All right. So next week, we are all headed down to sunny, warm Amelia Island in Florida for the annual RMA conference. And it should be a great one this year. It seems like it's going to be incredibly well attended. Fantastic agenda. I know there's quite a bit going on in the industry and the market. So wanted to get together today. And like I said, probably with less organization and comfort than last time we did, but we thought we could get together and just pregame a bit on RMA and go through what we think are some of the industry topical discussions and the highs and the lows and what expectations are and anything else you guys want to chat about. Yeah, that works for us. So thanks again for having us. Tommy V and I were talking earlier in the week and we said we did this last year around this time as well. It's like a preview or a banner for the upcoming RMA. So yeah, we're excited. A lot of people showing up, a lot of delegates. I believe the last count, 550 plus kind of equivalent to last year. I think there is a broad agenda, but focusing on several key themes. T plus one is probably top of mind. Recalls, collateral management always has its day in the sun, optimization. Things around even repo now and lifecycle management is becoming more familiar to people. Can't discount the RWA capital conversations that will be taking place in central clearing. You had a podcast recently with Mark Faulkner and Andy Dyson on that, part one and part two. It was like a cliffhanger. Did uh, you like that? Yeah. Did you approve of the cliffhanger? I, I approved. It... No, no, I approved of the cliffhanger. Remember back in the day when it was a real cliffhanger, like on television <laughs> before streaming, like you had to wait like a whole season? Well, and right? so I made the comment on my LinkedIn when I posted the second one, because with streaming now, it's actually true that to the extent that there are shows out there that drop one week, which there still are just fewer, it's actually frustrating to have to remember when they're going to drop and you have to then wait a whole week. Like, I don't like that. So I actually felt bad that we broke it into two parts, but 
they had a lot to say those two and it was a full meal deal hour plus I think and so I also felt like it was the right thing to do for listeners to break up and segment that out. I agree. It was a great segment. The one thing that Tom and I aren't doing today is he's not coming to my house for lunch or hanging out doing the podcast. We're doing it in the office the proper way. But Mr. Faulkner and Mr. Dyson seem like they had a good time and obviously they get on quite well. Yeah. So listen, all those things I mentioned, I think those are all top of mind built into the agenda. The agenda every year seems to be similar, but different, if you know what I mean. But what caters to all this stuff is just really what firms need to be thinking about in the pre-trade and post-trade space. Every firm has their own concerns and issues around these pending regulations. Some of them are going to be very much the same. And if it's like T plus one and how they're navigating that, others maybe risk weight and capital, depending on who you are, where you are and how you're attacking it is going to look different. We're encouraged. We're excited as always. We're going to see a bunch of people that we only get to see at these conferences, but others that we see more often. So I think it's going to be a great conference week and we look forward to meeting you all as well in person. Good. And so Zeke, obviously some themes are the same, some are different, as you noted. I definitely agree with that. What do you think though has evolved enough from last year that you think that there's really something new to talk about? Like clearly in the US market, we now have proposed regs in front of all the banks in terms of the implementation of the US version of Basel 3.1. There's some meat on the bones there. There's probably real things to discuss from that perspective. And I know interpretations are probably differing a little bit depending upon how severe you think that might be in final form. But what else do you think has evolved where the conversation's going to either have matured or changed or expectations differ from at this time last year? So I do think things, I like what you said, matured or accelerated. So I think most of the times at these conferences or big industry events, a topic is introduced or it's touched upon. And then over the course of that six-month checkpoint, 12 months when you're back in the room amongst all the industry colleagues and peers, things kind of take on a different life. So yeah, capital, the Basel 3 or 3.1 or whatever the end game is, that's definitely matured and has accelerated for some jurisdictions, right? U.S., clearly in focus. Canadian banks will be there as well. They'll have a different interpretation, plus those that come from overseas. I also think an awakening on the T plus one agenda has really accelerated, where last year people were kind of appreciating what would happen. But now, since it's in front of us and it's you know only X amount of months away, May 2024, I think there's a matter of urgency supporting that. So I think what changed that's that's been accelerated and matured. And I think the last thing is for the past, I don't know how many cycles we've been talking about DLT, DLT, but has that kind of been muted? now and has AI overstepped that very quickly with chat GPT and everything else that's come around that. So has AI almost leapfrogged? And we talk quite often here that back in, I think it was May, we were at one of our offsites with our sponsors, our investors, and our management team. And we had a whole dissertation on AI and the evolution. And one of the comments that comes out quite often is in India, for example, Folks skipped the landline and went right to mobile phones and cell phones, right? Are people going to skip something in the capital markets and technology to go right to the newest thing? And I think that's a great analogy because normally there's a sequencing, but we may be at a point now where things are moving so fast that we're just jumping ahead. And I think that tying it back to T plus one, one of the things the regulators have said clearly on the onset was talk about T1, T1, how quick can we get to T0? So that leap from T2 to T0 clearly won't happen but I don't think it'll be many, many years before we get there if T1 proves to be successful. So I think people will watch that acutely. So if I had to put a bow on it, definitely the Basel three endgame, definitely the impact it's going to have with firms of different shapes, sizes, regulated or non-regulated, GSIBs or not, and the clients they service on either side of the spectrum, your side of the world, or a prime broker's client, i.e. a hedge fund. I think definitely the T1 people can't hide from that because it's happening and it's happening across the markets, how it's going to acutely impact securities, bar and lending, securities financing is around the urgency around recalls is one area. 
And then I do think the technology transformation where could we possibly skip a generation of replatforming and go right to the next phase of it? Those would be my three things outside of just the other stuff that will always get covered and has probably advanced in its own right. I don't know if anything brand new is coming up, but those were the things that would be top of mind for me. Did I hear you right, Bob, saying that essentially digital ledgers, old technology and AI skipping digital ledger? Because to me, they're both technologies or were you saying we have to focus our resources and money on one or the other in the short term? Because isn't a digital ledger, I would think would be a great solution for implementation of T1 or maybe even T0, but AI would be more of revenue opportunity or different ways to slice and dice to generate and optimize money. Or are they the same? Is AI something you can skip right over kind of blockchain or digital ledger type stuff? I was suggesting that the pace of conversation around AI has seemed to accelerate it where digital ledger has always been there. And we've been talking about it for a while, right? It goes back to, ex yeah, okay. exactly. I draw it to like, how many years did we talk about equities as collateral in the US? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's still there. So no, I'm not okay. saying DLT goes away, but are there other advancements that are going to just accelerate faster and be adopted not to replace it, but that's yeah. where people are going to focus their energy on going forward. You know, yeah. talking about where have we advanced, because I do think DLT will always be part of that conversation. But is AI now kind of fast forwarded beyond that in terms of people's priorities? That's all. And we still believe, too, as we look at the post-trade world, it's all around STP, right? Trade through processing, how efficient you could be and how automated you can be. And you can get there a lot of ways. Do you necessarily need DLT to do that? Number one, maybe, maybe not. How else can you achieve that same outcome to achieve an STP rate of close to 100%, which is where the real value comes in? So yeah, I wasn't saying it's a replacement. It's just where are people focusing their attention on? Okay. And one takes a longer time because it's a major investment in replatform, where the other seems to be almost part of the common domain now where the world is operating, right? People are using it in many forms to address, like you said, revenue opportunities, creative opportunities, things like that. Do you guys think we, the industry, are ready for T1? I'm going to flip it over to the head of our North American product, Tommy V, who's been working very closely with our clients, with the market, and with the various industry associations on it. I have a view, but I'll let him chime in. I think that in the U.S., you're probably in a 50-50 type scenario at this point. There are a lot of people who have certain sophistications and with a couple of extra enhancements, they'll be okay and ready for T1 for automated recalls and inventory management. But if you look at Canada and Mexico, who in reality sort of came to the market a little bit later in agreeing for the T1 move, I think you've probably got a little bit bigger of a differential, maybe more around that 70-30. You've probably got a few smaller tier two to tier three in Canada and Mexico, and they're a little bit behind the curve and a little bit behind the eight ball on that, I think, in my opinion. But, you know, overall, will we be ready for T1 when it comes? Absolutely. I think we will be ready for it, but there's a lot of lift to do in the next four to five months to get there. Yeah. I was thinking about outside of the U.S. As we hold auctions, we'll get bids for various markets and then contingencies around those bids. And sometimes those contingencies are operational contingencies. Yes. Something we've been hearing, and I think, like, I could be wrong, I probably need to be more engaged in this, but I think we've been working with you guys on a solution, but it's T1 kind of settlement in Asian markets and the availability of Asia more real time or closer to at least where DTC lives. Once we get it right here, whenever the market's ready for it, but I guess it's coming in May either way, once we get there here, you can see it quickly spreading to other markets and the need for it and want for it elsewhere, yeah? 
Oh, definitely. Europe's already put panels together in the EU, and there's already investigations and sort of draft rule sets and things around T1. Asia-Pac will definitely follow. They're looking at it. They probably haven't formulated the right group yet, but they're definitely going to follow. I think T1 is going to come quickly across the markets globally. Like Zeke said, we're probably not going to have such a long span of time in between T1 T0, because I think most solutions that are going to come out for T1 will be scalable for T0, or at least they should be. And that's how the market should be thinking, not just try to solve for T1, but think about T0 and make sure your solutions now are scalable to that. And in that scenario, I just don't think, you know, we might see a little bit of a few speed bumps here and there in the following months after May, but I think it'll get ironed out and we'll probably see talk of T0 probably spur up pretty quickly. So yeah, that's industry readiness. I think it almost becomes, is the industry ready for this? I think it's two ways. One is, are they prepared through a technology fix or through system automation or just through whatever they have to do within your own company to just get ready for this? The other is, are people prepared for the consequences that may come as a result? Are they prepared for, is trading going to change? Is liquidity going to be- I was going to ask you guys. Yeah, yeah. This is a couple bubbles here. The one bubble is you're going to have the more advanced who are saying, you know what, we're ready for this because we have the best, as Tom said, inventory management system, the best protocols, the best operational efficiencies. We think we're going to have an edge. You have others who are saying, we're going to be prepared because we're working on this almost every day and we have internal working groups. And you have a third bucket who's like, hey, we're just coming to the realization that this is real and how do we adapt and what do we need? Okay, great. So it's creating urgency. But I think the bigger question is, is the industry prepared for what is the outcome of this? For example, if fails are persistent, do fail finds come into play at some point by the regulars? Who knows? Question to be determined. If people are skittish because there are exposure and buy-in risk and other consequences, even that parlay into the cash markets, does liquidity dry up as a result? Does it augment pricing, right? So I think there are a few other scenarios here, offshore, offshore lending or borrowing of US securities, disadvantaged time zone. If that is being sourced or traded in APAC, or if it's being managed out of an offshore entity, or if it's being done in large quantities in the UK, but their operational excellence for US is not the same as if you are onshore, for example. So I think a lot of those will play out terms of the industry preparedness, but I don't think those are questions. We don't know until it happens. And T plus two kind of came and went, I wouldn't say it's Y2K-ish, but T plus two, I don't remember 2017 that there was this same sense because that extra day was still a buffer of importance. With that evaporating now, and I'll flip it back to you all because you're the experts on the lending side and you have some great technology and how you get sale notifications from your custodians and how you're linked up or messaging. But how does that impact someone who is not as sophisticated or not prepared? And does it create opportunity for entries to come into market? Or is it going to be a result of people having to exit the market? Because this business, and similar to capital, is it too costly to operate and too much risk for the desired outcome? That's where I think industry preparedness is. That's an unknown, but folks that can get their head around it and can kind of interpret what's going to happen or maybe have a view on what's going to happen, maybe they're better prepared. It's the same thing when LIBOR went away, right? There were firms, I'm sure, were trading ahead of that and getting ready and positioning. And there was others who were just like, okay, we have to switch a benchmark now, but what does it really mean? I don't know. So that's two views on that. I have a comments last question, which is, so if this is May of 24 and then separate, so this is regulatory change that largely affects operational settlement, right? But then we separately will have a lot of regulatory changes coming into effect, impacting banks in other ways, impacting 
GC balances impacting pricing and liquidity separately in the market. And I'm not the expert on the timeframes for a lot of the implementation, at least in the US market. And obviously it'll be tightened up once final rules are out. But my understanding is beginning of 2025, but yet having to start to phase in some of that in the quarters ahead. So I'm just more sort of thinking out loud. I think it'll be interesting to see how much you can point to changes in some of the maybe knock-on effects to market dynamics and flow and volumes and pricing liquidity on things, whatever else, how much of it is reg cap type impacts and changes, how much of it's T plus one. I just think it's all going to get a little confused over time. Is that too simple of a thought process? Do you have a view on that, Jim? Zeke, my, anyone? My view, is that, my view is that's definitely not a question. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jim. Okay. I, I agree with Bob in that this is a situation where we just have to have it come and see what happens and then just create or change or flow with what happens. Bob, I think you were saying, does it change players in the market? Yes. It might change who plays in different segments of the market. So those completely prepared for it might be able to do low margin business and others won't be able to do low margin business. I think the market already today pre-borrows anything that's hard to borrow or difficult to borrow. And so maybe that helps ease the pain on that segment of the market. But I don't know. I'm anxious to see it too. I mean, ESEC's model is slightly different in that we come to the market with exclusives and discretionary, and so we'll auction. And I wonder how exclusives and or FIFA holds fits in to a world where you're mismatched a little bit between notification of the sell and recall in a T1 or T0 world. So it's all we can do is be prepared to have conversations and be ready to build whatever we need to build to adapt and potentially take advantage of, from our perspective and our client's perspective, any opportunities but it's so gray at this point. We'll leave it to the smart people. Right, Bob? Yeah, that's right. Introduce us to those smart people. We'll have a conversation, present company excluded. And I think it comes down to the data because I do think like anything, once this happens, there'll be elements of timely data, data analysis. We're already being asked that for our solutions. Like, okay, great. It solves for this, brings automation, solves for the complexities of recalls, solves for the communications, et cetera. And the next question is, what's the MIS associated with it? Because maybe you all, you know, in your current roles and seats, you start looking at the relationship value. If someone's a habitual offender, how do you quantify that? Again, is that another element on how you gauge who you're doing business with? I don't know. And that's why I think these are all, it's like insurance. We were saying that the other day, you need some form of insurance. You hope you never have to use it, but you can't, unless you're just operating without brakes, that you're running that risk. I don't think people in this from T1 are saying we're going to take a chance. They have to do something and be prepared. Otherwise, they run the risk of obviously not being compliant, but they run the risk of jeopardizing their business as they know it today, potentially. But we'll see. There's some months here for implementation, but there's also some unknowns that I think have to come out of this or will come out of this, I should say. And when we chatted last year at this time and on this topic, because it's, as you said, we were talking about it last year also, we're just further along. We're further matured, as I noted earlier. You threw out the concept of real-time recalls or that cycle continuing to grow and becoming faster and more efficient throughout the day from an operational processing and settlement perspective. You both already spoke about how once T plus one happens, you think then that the evolution to T zero happens somewhat efficiently or could happen efficiently because the market will sort of already be ready to tune up those same changes to get there. But can you just expand on a little bit more? What further is needed to go beyond T plus one for securities lending and the recall and settlement cycle analysis? 
is it the speed of which files are being transmitted and therefore actions being taken? Is that kind of all it is or is there more to it? No, I think there's a little bit more to it, Brooke. Definitely, obviously, it, as real time as possible and updating the way things go for maybe not necessarily going with files, but getting to like MQ and Kafka type messaging where you're doing real time messaging is going to help. But realistically, especially getting into a T0 scenario, it's going to be, and we sort of touched on this last year, is all right, it's going to be the sales notification scenario that really is what has to be updated from that T1 to T0, right? So you'll still have your 48 hours to get the recall back in a T1 scenario, but you're still needing to get that CNS and everything confirmed on day one. So if you get to T0, that's going to compress even more. And if you don't have maybe even pre-sale notifications in somewhat of a standardized format coming in in more of a real-time basis, there's going to be some problematic scenarios in getting all of the rest of that. So you could be as good as you possibly can be from a recall situation, but you have to know what to recall first. And I think that's where the real evolution has to come from. The industry is out there. We're building for recalls in a near real-time to real-time basis, automated STP processing. So even if the cutoffs came at 1159, which is another topic of conversation that's out there, you still need to know that sales notification. You still need to get the buy side scenario down pat. So where's that supply? How's that supply coming in? Are you going to get the sales notifications in time? Because if you don't, what's the other alternative? Are we going to start building higher buffers in the US market where you used to lend 99%, now you're only going to lend 75 or 50%. And then what does that do? Back to what Zeke and Jim would talk about. What does that do to liquidity? What does that do to pricing? What does that do to you know all the different scenarios that are going to happen in the market from that? And does it bring some players out of it? Because if you're only going to lend 50%, is the risk reward worth it? When you talked about pre-sell just then, do you really mean truly pre-sell or do you just mean real-time communication of the sell transaction? I would say T plus one real-time information and transactions of messages for sell transactions. But in T0, I would think that you would almost want to see somewhat of a pre-sale notification or at least be privy to the intent to sell so that a decision could be made, right? If you could see the order, even if it hasn't been executed, then potentially there's still a decision to be made to protect yourself from the recall scenario so that there's not a failure or a buy-in. But I think you're really going to need to see somewhat of a pre-sale to intend to sell when we move to T0. I think Jim's earlier point is spot on around the other jurisdictions. We go back to that for a second. The world of regulators will be looking at how the US, Canada, Mexico adapt to this and then maybe gives them pause to either accelerate or not accelerate in terms of how they want to implement. So this is a situation where there'll be a lot of attention and focus because of what Tom said earlier, others are already having those conversations around how they implement. And I think that this gets back into the technology the play to T0, should it happen faster, quicker, I think a lot has to do with because what's available today than what was available previous, right? When the markets were T5, I remember France traded at T30. And through advances in technology, advances in communication, advances in automation, maybe the T0 doesn't happen in five years, maybe it's three, or maybe it'll happen in seven years because they want to give the market some time to continue to adjust. Those are some of the questions I think about is technology will help make that decision. But yeah, we need to get this right as a collective. And that's what we're here to support and others in our space to support clients like you all and you support your clients. But it will have a knock on effect, I'm sure, early on. And people may just take a pause and just sit back and say, well, let's wait to see how this plays out before we jump in feet first. I know there's a lot more on the RMA agenda in general. You threw this into when you gave us the overview on the agenda broadly. You mentioned CCPs. 
let's save our listeners the long answer. But if you had a shorter answer on where you think the opportunity set is for more business shifting towards CCPs, the viability of that, the roadblocks of that, what's your own personal perspective on where we are today versus last year and maybe where we will be going forward? I think it comes down to it's in front of people now, right? They know there's a timeline. They know what the expectation is. They know what their views on capital is and the cost of capital and how capital is allocated and how if it's hitting a business's P&L line and what decisions they have to make, right? There's a couple of things you could do. The, The CCP route is one that usually takes time to adopt. In the U.S., the FICC, you know, when fixed sponsor repo came out, it didn't happen overnight. But things will drive people to use different means of transacting. Do they switch more to CCPs? Do they use derivatives? Do they look for more favorable counterparts from a risk weight perspective? Do they do nothing and pare down business? Firms aren't going to go out and just issue, you know, raise new capital to support a securities funding business, securities financing business, right? And these are high margin businesses, but they also come with some high use of financial resources or high cost of financial resources, both leverage and capital and funding. So yeah, I think people are very curious, very interested, either with SIBO, interested with in the US NSEC, OCC and others around the space because, you know, one would think you need that outlet. Otherwise, absent of that, what are the alternatives that you can find? So it's in a way, I think the CCP stuff will continue to progress. And some will say they want to hear sooner. Others will say, well, maybe it's only for those that need it. Why would everyone else get involved, right? If it's only going to be for X amount of large regulated entities, large banks that are the ones who are going to absorb the cost of this. So it was at ISLA, right? You were all there as well. I was there. It was one of the hottest topics at ISLA, CCPs. CCP is one of those topics that we've been talking about at conferences for years and years, but it is gaining momentum, I would say. And from my seat, Zeke, I look at it and I say, we have multiple clients. Our clients do or don't want to engage with the street on various segments of business. And so unfortunately, there's no magic bullet. Central clearing might be an answer for two or three brokers, whereas pledge or pledge back might be the answer to that same capital that's right. Uh, constraint for others. And so what are our options as a lender, as an agent lender? So I think we need to, and it's important enough where we're bringing our product guy, Ed Oliver, over from London to go to the RMA. And our conversations are going to be focused with, or at least we're going to lead with, what's your answer? What's your preferred route to solution for RWA? And we need to scope that out as a firm for all our clients against all our counterparts and say, where do we build? What goes first? I don't think we can just do CCP. There's multiple CCPs. Some of the solutions currently that are proposed work, some don't, but even if the ones that work are a solution, it's not for everybody. And so we, to the extent that our clients want to engage in that business, which given our client base, the, the answer to that is across the board, yes, with a handful of exceptions, want to engage in lower margin business, we need a solution for it. And so pretty important. It'll be the top as much as I hate it because it's boring, but it's important. And I think it's a 2024 build across the board. And so we need to prioritize what's most important to us. And we're partially baked when it comes to a handful of the solutions. We need to know which way we got to crank up the heat and get it done this year. Yeah. And Jim, I agree. And I think we said the exact same thing. It solves for a handful that really need it, but you'd also need the liquidity. So if you look at and you want to navigate all the concerns around what's going to happen out of the Basel III and to have a well-functioning securities financing value chain, maybe this is the one, I would say, market change where it's not all equal for everyone, right? Because you know T1 doesn't discriminate. Other stuff doesn't discriminate. This discriminates a little bit based on your size, if you're regulated or not, who you're dealing with. There's a lot of variability to it, operational 
elements to it. You know, when you look at risk weight, it's the credit risk part, it's the operational risk, and sometimes depending on what business it could be the market risk. Well, for securities financing, collateralized businesses really not market risk because you're not dealing in market risk. You're dealing in definitely credit risk and operational. And it does change the landscape depending if you're a large institution and your capital profile looks different, or if you're smaller. And then do things go into peripheral, into the things outside of the regulatory purview, i.e. the shadow banking world. Or That's where I get back early. It does a great opportunity for people to come in. So yeah. yeah, this is the one where it could be transformational. If you're a Canadian bank and you look one way, if you're a US bank, you look a third. If you're a Swiss here in Australia or UK or in MIA, Asia bank, you know, it's going to play differently. So that could bring opportunity, no different than when UMR was coming into scope and how people, depending on where you fell in your derivatives exposure and book and size, you were in scope one, two, three, four, five, or six. Well, everything in between, you know, there was options, there was optionality, and there was price discovery, and there was bid offers that were created because people can play in that market space until it became all centrally cleared. And that was the mandate on the UMR, uncleared margin rules. So I do think this is a big topic. We have been talking about it, but it's becoming real now because of the acceleration of what's being introduced in the market. Yep, agreed. Brooke, you started off this, and I think it's fair. What we don't want is these conferences to be a stale. I don't think they're stale because I think things move at different paces. I haven't looked at the agenda in depth every panel, so I'm not going to say, you know, I've done my homework on that, but I don't know if there's anything completely different, but there's some parts of it that, as we said earlier, will be different because of what's happening, the pace of that change and how it's being introduced. So it will never be boring. How about that? Right. One big difference is what I'm involved with on the agenda. So thanks for paying attention to that, Zeke. RMA is bringing in some of the supply side voices to the conversation and has a yes. panel where they're looking for the supply side specifically to bring their perspective to the conversation and really what they face because everything we just talked about has impact to the underlying lenders, long only holders, the beneficial owners in the community and a lot of the impacts to this will absolutely change the risk return profile of what they're doing and their view on it. And many are going to adapt and evolve with the changes, whether they be some of the operational changes, like the shift to T plus one and the increase in frequency of cell notification, that's an obvious one, but then also the, all the rate cap changes and what that's going to mean to their book of business and what trades they do with which counterparts and what tools they need to have ready to go to optimize trade activity with different people. So. I think it's going to be great to hear from the supply side community at RMA this year. I'm excited for that conversation. Brooke, we're well aware of your speaking part on Thursday at 9.15 a.m. Okay. moderating. Well, have you set your alarm? I hope you, I, don't have, I will, I hope you haven't scheduled will, a group workout during that time slot. No, no. But for those on this call who will be listening to this attending, we do have the first Purim Fitness CrossFit workout session on Tuesday at 7.30 a.m. So if you're at the conference, meet in the lobby of the Ritz and you'll be engaged because not only we take care of the conference and what's important to us from a business perspective, but mind and body and wellness go hand in hand. So Come on out and join us for that. You'll get a lot of laughs and I'm sure a lot of fun out of it. So um, has JJ registered for that already? Twice. Twice he registered. Be there at 7 a.m. You know, he registered <laughs> twice for both of his love handles. <laughs> so yeah, we'll see him there. Oh. Well, good. I am sure everyone will be looking forward to that CrossFit opportunity. A group CrossFit is going to be an interesting dynamic. Yeah, another way to collaborate and keep us focused. There was a post that we sent out. I said, you could sweat out your Monday and feel invigorated for your Tuesday if you come work out with us. But you made a good point earlier. You're like, well, you know, do I want to engage with people and sweaty and amongst industry colleagues and peers? And I said, what's the difference between that and, you know, Monday night, 10 o'clock at a bar, right? It's kind of similar. So you might as well get some benefit out of it, but it should be good fun. We did hire a professional to lead. So it's not like one of us doing it, someone who actually does this for a living. But then I took it one step too far and I said, well, I know it's not cold, but I said, 
And after the workout, everyone jumps in the ocean to the first Purim plunge as well. So I don't know if we're going to get uptake on that, but we'll see. Well, cold plunge is definitely a health and wellness trend that's spanning the globe. So I'm just not sure that the Atlantic off the coast of Florida this year qualifies to be cold enough for true therapy, but I do sure agree. it'll be refreshing. <laughs> I, I agree. Well, listen, it's always entertaining, engaging. We appreciate you guys having us. Again, we look forward to seeing you and others down at the conference. Brooke will be there bright and early at your panel. If you need us to ask any questions in advance or plant any questions, Tom V said it. he's happy to do that. He's Please happy to, to pose one. Front, front, rows, front row center, Tommy. You got it. I'll be there. All right. Well, good. Well, thank you both. And Jim, thanks for doing this with me in the co-pilot seat this week. And we'll see everyone at RMA. And if you have any feedback for us, give it to Jim. He loves it. And if you don't, then that's okay too. Thanks for listening, everyone. Good stuff. Great seeing you speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you. Great to see everybody. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope we left you with something interesting and productive to utilize in your daily securities lending activities. And friends, don't forget to subscribe to ESEC Lending Insights wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our disclaimer. This material is for your private information and does not constitute legal tax or investment advice. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based upon such information. Thank you for listening.